Hey there, and welcome to Church of the Beloved's weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zoe, and I serve on staff as the production manager here at COTB. Today's message is brought to us by interim pastor Derek Gatke. He's preaching from Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Today, we're going to look at everyone's favorite spiritual discipline, absolute favorite, how to give. Uh, so just to start, uh, uh, Kevin, could you post my Venmo information? It's uh, <laughs> Derek the Man Gatke. Okay, no. But seriously, this often is a touchy subject for many because it has been, observedly so, abused in the church. You Google any prominent megachurch and you will just be lambasted with luxuries, jets, jewelry, white suits. Anyway, uh, we hear stories of pastors asking for and collecting, collecting millions of dollars for things like private jets, and it's all done for the kingdom. There's even a uh, comedy on HBO that I cannot recommend because it's terribly inappropriate called The Righteous Gemstones. The premise is a megachurch family that collects the money and, yes, preaching, yes, Jesus, Jesus, but most of the show is behind closed doors and it's just sheer depravity. For many outside the church and inside, giving, tithing, offerings, bringing something to the church has become a farce at best and a scam at worst. And yet, God does have some very clear thoughts and direction on money, our possessions, our resources, and what our relation to them should be. And while today's passage does cover part of it, uh, we've got a lot of different scripture that I had to pull from for this, so I hope you've got your page flipping fingers ready or your app flipping fingers ready. Today, I'd like us to consider the following. What are we giving? What is God asking us to give? What are we giving? Two, how do we give? Some practicality there, but how do we give? And then finally, why do we give? Why do we give? So what are we giving? How do we give? And why do we give? Would you please bow your heads with me as we pray for this message? Father, um, we thank you for the numerous blessings that you give us. And um, as we approach this message today, I pray you would open our hearts to hear uh, why you ask for things back. And what is the goal of that? What is, what is the spirit behind it? Please help us see that with open hearts, open minds, and maybe at the end of this, uh, open palms. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, what are we giving? Now typically, if anyone from the pulpit talks about giving, they mean money. Just flat out, let's lay it out there. In America, there's been a huge movement over the past few decades, I think since the 1950s at this point, called the prosperity gospel. And if you haven't heard of it, the second I start describing it, I'm sure you'll know what I mean. Typically, the prosperity gospel is megachurches, tens of thousands of people attending these giant buildings. Again, like I was mentioning before, covered in luxuries, private jets, that kind of stuff. And the problem with the prosperity gospel is it teaches, in general, two fallacies. One is that God financially blesses everyone who is saved. Everyone. If you're saved, you get money. That's one teaching. Second, the more you give the church, the more God will give you. Uh, kind of like a, um, 
a, 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 an extreme investment return opportunity through God's blessing. Now, passages throughout the Bible are used to support these ideas. Today's passage includes something like that in regard to God promising prosperity, uh, verses 4 through 5 of what we read today. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. Another verse often cited to support the idea of you give, you tithe, and God will just shower you with money is Malachi 3.10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now, admittedly, this is an extremely attractive idea, right? That if you give to God, he'll always give you more. Like you can't outgive God. I don't know how many of you have heard that phrase before. But usually it's again, it's sold to us like some kind of obnoxiously high interest return rate on a spiritual 401k. It's um, and it's why so many prosperity churches are filled to the brim. Tens of thousands of people, people watching online, and the money keeps pouring in because there's that promise that money will be pouring down when you do that. But what this means on the flip side, if the prosperity's gospel's things are true, is if you're not doing well financially, well, then you better get your act together, right? Because if those who are saved are financially blessed, then those who are not financially blessed are probably not saved. And if God's not blessing you actively, then it's got to be because you're not strictly obeying the voice of the Lord, right? Or worse, you're not giving enough. You know, ah, you're not getting enough money, so you just got to give more. Just keep giving more. Ah, maybe, maybe the next $100, God will finally turn that around. Now this, of course, this system is inherently exploitative, and everyone from the outside can see it. And it's actively been critiqued numerous times by many outside of the church. Most often, the critique boils down to a single provocative question. And the best example I was able to find was an old, old movie called Star Trek V. <laughs> the Final Frontier. Now, I have not seen this movie. I haven't, but I've heard it's horrible. And I do listen to a movie review podcast that they review every single movie in a series. So when they got to this one and they got to a certain plot point, I was like, really? That's, that's what the movie's about. And here's what the movie's about. Uh, the crew of the Enterprise go to find God. They, they fly out into space. They're on a mission. They want to go find God. And they find something. <laughs> they find an entity that claims to be God. And one of the, all the crew are like, oh, it's God. And, and this entity says... Uh, let me board your spaceship. And Captain Kirk, because, side note, this movie was written and directed by William Shatner, so of course he's going to outsmart God. <laughs> Captain Kirk asks the question, what does God need with a starship? And of course it's revealed it's not God, because God wouldn't. What would God need with a starship? If God is all-powerful, all-knowing, the creator and sustainer of everything, then the question we should ask is, what does God need with our money? 
The Bible is filled with passages where God doesn't just ask, but commands us to give, usually financially. You go to the Old Testament, and yes, they're talking about sacrifices of animals, but um, for those of you who might not know the Old Testament that well, that was wealth. Like, how many animals you had was basically your bank account. They didn't have coins at that point to that degree. Um, and this wasn't just giving to the poor. It was also, like in, our, like in our passage today, give to the poor. But it was also like give directly to the temple. Give directly to God. The temple in the Old Testament, the church in the New. But the Bible is also clear that God isn't asking for this because he needs your stuff. Everything in the world, even what you have, is his. Psalm 24.1 reads, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Psalm 50 reads, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Alluding there to the idea of the sacrifices are not because I need them. Job 41.11, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So what is giving all about? What are we giving him if everything belongs to him anyway? Are we just sort of shuffling things around under his own house? Is it just money that we're giving him, tithes and offerings, a few spare items we ran to the Goodwill or the local family charity? Jesus, as always, has the answer for us. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I'm pretty sure everyone's heard that last line. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And that is the key. God doesn't want your money or your stuff because ultimately that's all his already. What he wants is you. You. He wants your heart, your trust, your faith, and the active obedience that reflects and confirms that faith. It's easy to say, I believe in God, I love God. What do you do in response to that? If you love someone, you do things in response to that. Everything God has given you is temporary. He's essentially loaning it to you for about 80 years, if you're lucky. Everything you have is being loaned, and you have a single lifetime to use it. This isn't, and it, uh, let me step, take a step back. This isn't just about your money. It's about everything he's given you. It's about your time, your talents, your resources, your relationships, everything. What he wants to see in this little time he's given you where he's loaned you his stuff is how well do you steward it? How well do you take care of it? How well will you handle what you've been entrusted with? Stewardship has been God's design for humanity from the beginning. When he created Adam and Eve, he had two charges. One was, be fruitful, different sermon altogether, and two was to be good stewards of the earth. 
Genesis 1.28, I'll just read it for you. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This was his original calling. This is before sin. So stewardship isn't like a response to the fall. It's something he wanted us to be doing from the beginning. So how do we do that? How do we steward well? What, what does that look like? How do we give? How do we give? There's a fascinating exchange in our passage today, uh, one that we might be tempted to see as a contradiction, or if we read too fast, we might have missed it entirely, which I've, I've done. <laughs> you know. Reminder that this is Moses proclaiming to the Israelites that God will be taking care of them in the promised land. Verse 4 reads, but there will be no poor among you. No poor. Yet, three verses down in verse 7, it reads, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. Okay, so there's the, there's, there's the possibility of poor. Well, wait, verse 11, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. What's happening here? In the course of seven verses, we went from there will no, there will be no poor in this land to there will always be poor people. Why would Moses claim there won't be any poor among the Israelites and then turn around and say there will always be poor? There are two takeaways here. And I know, like, on the surface, again, it's easy to miss or to think this is a contradiction. There, I'm sure there's plenty of people out there who's like, ah, we got it. The Bible contradiction. It breaks it. We broke the Bible. But the Bible is written for adults, so we have to read it like adults. First off, God does promise to take care of his people, but he never promises a life without challenges, even extreme ones. You could be a millionaire Let's say billionaire. Let's, make, let's go for big stakes. You could be a billionaire today and lose it all tomorrow. A, a brilliant bank heist that makes the news. Tom Cruise broke in, stole everything you had. Your mansion could burn down, and for some reason you kept everything in cash and bags. Everything just burns to the ground. You could be audited by the IRS, which I think is a guaranteed bankruptcy at this point. Whatever. It could be gone in an instant. Or, getting more serious... You could become desperately sick and see your life savings vanish into a sea of medical bills. Poverty, need, they're all a part of the world that we're in, the brokenness of this world. And they'll never be completely gone until Jesus returns and restores the kingdom. So God is taking account of that. But second, second takeaway here, when he's charging his people to care for the poor. God's plan to alleviate these issues, and he has a plan, but to alleviate the problem of poverty, his plan isn't to directly or miraculously fix every single instance himself. Just snap his fingers and your bank account goes whoop. That's not God's plan. His plan is to call on and work through the people he originally called to steward those resources in the first place. He is calling on his people to steward each other, to care for each other, to love each other. If we didn't have opportunities to love each other, we would become 
isolated, alone, that there'd be no reason to interact if all of our problems were just always cared for by God. Now, this goes beyond just helping someone out when they're in a jam, as we see in the middle of our passage. Deuteronomy 15, verses 8 through 10. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, ah, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Again, there's a couple of takeaways here. First... God is calling his people to give enough, to be generous enough, to meet needs, not exceed them. He's calling us to meet needs, not exceed them. We are not called to give so much away that we end up hurting ourselves and the other person comes out ahead. Does that make sense? I know that might sound a little like, oh, but, but I want to be generous, Jerry. Generous, generosity, Please, follow your heart, but we are called to meet needs, not lavish on people. If you had a friend come up to you who's like, hey, I need a million-dollar loan. I've got a great business idea. If they propose to you a business idea that you know they have no training in, you're not meeting a need by giving them the million-dollar loan. Stewardship requires wisdom and discernment. It's not just tossing our money around and hoping for the best. Consider the story of Joseph, and I, we don't have time to go through the whole story today, but the story of Joseph in Genesis, what happens? He's called by God to steward the resources of Egypt. He's confronted with seven years of plenty and seven years of famine, and he wisely collects as much as he can for the seven years of plenty, and then during the seven years of famine, he distributes with wisdom, discernment, patience. He meets needs. Now, I'm sure there were plenty of people coming, no, 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 I need twice as much food this week. If he had just thrown it out every time someone asked, he'd be out within a year. And then where would everyone be? So stewardship calls for wisdom and discernment, not just throwing money every time someone asks. And yet, at the same time, while we don't give beyond what's needed, we're still called here to give freely not begrudgingly. That, that business about the seventh year, which I know we didn't really get into, and it's you know, the seventh year, the year of release, that, that was a regular practice God instituted into um, the, the Israelite culture that, where debts would be routinely forgiven. Every seven years, if you owed a loan or something, it would just be gone, done. And the trick was, this was a seven-year cycle. So if you gave someone a loan in year six, you knew you were only going to get one year's worth of repayment, and then it's done. That's what God is warning about. Can you imagine if we instituted a system like that today? <laughs> Credit card companies and student loan aid would just be, they'd be dead, <laughs> dead in the water. Giving freely, this idea of just being ready to give, even though you're wise about how much you're giving it, it's not just in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament too. Though it is embraced to a spectacular degree. Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. 
and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Does this sound extreme, radical, impossible? Sounds like communism. <laughs> yes, everyone's selling their stuff and collecting the proceeds, but again, there's wise stewardship here, distributing as people had need. Is that somewhere we want to go? Is that a people we want to be? Is that someone you want to be? How do we get there? How can we get to a place where we steward well, but we're also, we give freely. We don't hold back. If someone does have a legitimate need, we aren't hemming and hawing. Before the fall, before sin entered the world, again, God created us for stewardship now. Sin ruined this as it ruined everything inside of us. And our natural sinful inclination now is not to steward, it's to hoard. Why? We, we, we hoard our money. We hoard our time. We hoard our possessions. Why? Why do we hoard? Why is it so hard to give freely when God asks? Part of it, I think, is we fall into the trap, again, that we think of a, whatever we're hoarding is ours. You know, it's, it's my money. I earned it. I put in my time this week, so my day off is mine. I was nice to great-grandpa Horace when no one else was, so the inheritance is mine. And sure, some of us have seen some extreme examples of hoarding on hoarders. And as much as those situations, you know, they're fascinating, we might be tempted to chuckle at it, they are very sad situations. And a phrase that is usually raised in those extreme circumstances that I think gets to the heart of our problem is, I may need this someday. I, I might need this someday. That's a common phrase, especially with actual hoarders, is, well, visible hoarders, because we're all hoarders. That's what I just said. Um, I may need this someday. Now, for us, when we watch that show, it's like piles of garbage, it's old letters, it's tax forms from 30 years ago. And we can say, you don't need that. But what do you look at in your life and say, I may need this someday? I believe that gets us to the heart of our problem. We hoard, and we consequently don't give freely, because ultimately we're afraid. We're scared. Jesus knew this when he told us in Matthew chapter 6, again, right after he shared, your treasure is where your heart is. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. They don't hoard. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. When you hoard instead of give, when you hold on instead of steward, you are putting your primary faith and trust in things rather than the person who gave those things to you. God has promised over and over and over again, over again in the passage we read in Deuteronomy and what I just read from Matthew, that he'll take care of us. He's got it. He promises that. The Israelites in the wilderness, they just came from seeing manna coming down every single day for food. And God said, don't save it to the next day because it'll get moldy. They did. It got moldy, and God sent another wave. But that takes faith that God will keep showing up. The, thing, the problem with things, the problem with money, particularly money, but we could also say our resources or the stuff we own, they are tangible. They're concrete. They're there. You see, your, you can look at your bank account right now. You can all just pull out your phones and look at it. Faith in God, we can't hold. We can't control. But this tangibility, it's, it's, it's a false trust. Again, like I said before, you could lose all your stuff in an instant, an accident, a natural disaster, another stock market crash. Bam. And we've seen it happen to others. It might have happened to you at some point. God is trying to get our hearts away from the stuff that he knows is fleeting. The act of giving, whether through tithes, offerings, charity to the poor, helping out a friend, what have you, it's always primarily an act of trusting that God will do what he said he would do. And every time you hold up what he's given you in a clenched fist instead of an open palm, you're telling God, I don't believe you love me. I don't believe you have my best interests at heart. I need a backup plan. Because I do believe at some point you will betray and abandon me. We're afraid. That's why we hold on. So if you want to give freely, if you want to be someone like we just saw in Acts 2 or Deuteronomy 15 or the kind of Christian Jesus calls us to be, it starts with something, something simple, but very challenging and very profound. You got to believe it. You got to believe him. You have to have faith. It comes down to faith. And if you are having trouble with that part, which we all do, then it's time to consider why do we give? Why do we give? Is it just because God tells us to? It's a good reason. As Christians, we believe that we were saved from eternal destruction through the single greatest act of generosity ever. In Jesus Christ, we believe God sent his only son to live and die for us, paying the full penalty for our sins. We owe nothing so that we could be restored to an eternal life with God in paradise. Eternal life, paradise, never needing anything. And through the mystery of the Trinity, as Jesus Christ also is God, God the Son, but also God incarnate, we believe that this was an act both of personal sacrifice, you know, God dying for us, it was also the act 
of giving up a child for us, which, as a parent, chills me to the bone. It's one thing for me to say, I'll die for you. It's another to say, I'll let day die for you. This act of grace, this freely given but infinitely costly salvation is so extraordinary that the fact it's even a thing should make us drop to our knees, jaw open, and just sit there in awe and wonder. And on top of that, we have all the promises that we read today. God will take care of your daily needs. God will feed you. God will clothe you. God will give you shelter. All the things that we're actually scared about instead of the eternal damnation that he actually saved us from. If you can allow that truth to wrap itself around your heart, and as Christians, we believe that God has given us that, but that's a struggle to keep remembering, isn't it? It's not like we're going to wake up every morning being like, I'm saved, eternal life. Like, that's, is that really your first thought every morning? It's usually like, I am tired, and the coffee machine is broken. It's... <laughs> but if you can let it dwell in your heart to that degree where it's your waking moment that you are so loved and cared for by the one who owns everything and died for you, that you are guaranteed an eternity in his house as an adopted child, how can you possibly be scared of what tomorrow brings? Why would you need to hold on to anything? Everything is promised to you. And if the one who did this for you asked you to give something up for someone else, how could you possibly begrudge them that? Now, some of you may be thinking, okay, I get how stewarding our resources to help the poor makes sense. But what about the church, Derek? Where do tithes and offerings come in? You, I know you're going to get to it. <laughs> because, yeah, this ain't, a Pentecost, uh, this, is, this ain't a prosperity gospel church, but come on, there's a give page on the website. Let's talk. <laughs> All right. First off, we are in a very blessed state at our church because we have a board of directors, and I have no access to the funds. So I can say whatever, I get nothing out of that. <laughs> like, I don't get a bonus. <laughs> uh, I don't get a commission, let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, and when, in, uh, yeah, <laughs> anyway. Um, thank you, thank you, I appreciate it. Um, remember what I said about how God wants to work through his people to fix what's wrong with his creation. Another way of looking at stewardship is that we are called to be a part of God's redemptive work. He is always actively inviting us to be a part of that. What is God's ultimate redemptive work? Is it meeting physical needs? Oh, yeah, there's plenty of examples in the Bible where God calls us to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters and our neighbors. Is it meeting financial needs? Yeah, give until the need is met. Or is the ultimate redemptive work spiritual need? 1 Corinthians 4.1 reads, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The greatest act of redemption we can take part in is bringing people to Jesus. And that primarily comes through ministry and sharing the good news. 
This isn't something we can do in a vacuum. I know that the temptation will be like, well, I could just go tell my friend about Jesus. Try it without a community to back you up. See how long you can do that. We need a community to showcase the love of Christ. We can't do it individually. When Jesus sent his disciples out, he didn't send them one at a time, he sent them two by two. That community needs resources to learn, to educate, to share and grow with each other and those around us, to be there to help out when needs arise. The community needs people who can focus exclusively on administration, on preparing spaces, teaching, praying, preparing messages. And I guarantee if churches started charging admission to raise funds instead of asking for donations, ain't nobody coming in that door. <laughs> but again, this isn't just about money. It's about whatever God has given you and whatever you can give, be it money, time, talents, what have you. For some, money, giving money isn't feasible. You, you just, you're barely making ends meet. God understands. You have time, possibly, I don't know. Or the, for the others, the opposite. You have tons of money, but no time. So when it comes to giving, like actually giving as a spiritual discipline that we'll regularly practice, the question always comes up, how much? How much is enough? Is it 10%? 10% tithe? Hey. Always a good start, and the nice thing about percentages is whatever your income is, you can give that. <laughs> and for all you students, 10% of nothing is still nothing. <laughs> but is it 30%? In the Old Testament, if you go through all the rules, all the sacrifices, all the calls for offerings and festivals and stuff, it actually adds up to about 30% of the Israelites' annual income. Or... Is, do we have to follow the example of the rich young ruler where Jesus tells him he needs to give everything and then he walks away sad? Is it really 100%? Ask yourself this. How much do you need to give so that you can say with all certainty, God is my refuge and nothing else? How much would you have to give for it to be an actual act of faith and not just a comfortable practice that fits within your budget? All I'm saying is maybe start there and see how your father, who gave up everything for you, responds to you giving up something for him. Let us pray. Thanks for tuning into this week's COTB Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us online, you can find us at cotb.life.